Think big. Think positive. Never show any sign of weakness. Always go for the throat. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Nothing you have ever experienced can prepare you for the unbridled carnage you're about to witness. Right. Super Bowl, the World Series, they don't know what pressure is. In this building, it's either kill or be killed. Right. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. No prison. One minute, you're up half a million in soybeans and the next, boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? Hello and welcome to Turner's Take Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Turner author of Turner's Take Newsletter. I am a broker here at Stone X. I specialize in the grain and oilseed markets. And within my team uh, here in Chicago, we have experts in the energy markets, uh, livestock, protein markets, interest rates, fertilizer, currencies, OTC. If you have any questions for me about either grain oilseed markets or any of the services that Stonex provides, feel free to reach out anytime. My number is 312-706-7610. Email is craig.turner at stonex.com. All my contact information is in the show notes of this podcast. And if you do like the podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. Forward along to anyone who you think might like to listen. All right, so let's get into it. I'm going to start off with the macro markets. You know, the stock market has really made quite the recovery here um, during this year. And we've gone all the way. I'm going to use the S&P. The S&P is the index that professional traders use. I know the Dow is up on the uh, on the screen a lot with, uh, with CNBC, but uh, the S&P is really where a lot of things get measured off of. And, you know, the E-mini S&P went from 3,900 to about 40, we're about 45.50 now. So that is uh, that is a nice run without a 15% jump off the lows on the uh, on the E-mini S&P. And if we take a look at, I'm just going to go much farther back. The highs were about 4,800. So last week we got the 46.40. I mean that's. We're, now we're talking only a couple. I mean, the highs of a couple of weeks ago were only a couple of percentage points away from all-time highs in the stock market. So let's talk about that and what that means. A lot of people equate the stock market with the health of the economy, um, or if we we're growing or not. That is that is not the case. I think when you have a recession, you can see the stock market go down, and when times are good, the stock market's going up. But those in-between times, you know, what's going on with the stock market? And you got to, one of the things that I think would benefit everyone to realize is something like the S&P 500, which is the top 500 companies in the United States. And those companies are spread out across different sectors. And what separates those companies apart from anything else is not just their businesses and services or products but their execution team at basically at the executive level, all right, whether it be the CEO, CFO, CO, and then the heads of the major business units on these big, in these big companies. What their job is to do is to make money in all types of markets if possible. And if they know they're going to have rough times, 
um, to cut costs, you know, nowhere to cut costs. And then when things are growing, nowhere to, to make pushes, whether in advertising or product development, R&D, whatever it may be. And that's their job. So in theory, if they're doing it correctly and those people get paid the most of all the, you know, of the managerial class, that, that index should outperform the economy, should outperform, uh, should outperform other companies their size that aren't in that index. And that's the idea of it. And then the, and I've just given a little bit of this background here. And if they're not performing, they fall out of the S&P and get replaced by another one. So you have a, what, you know, basically on these indices, either by size or performance, companies that have the executives to keep on returning value to their shareholders. So with that in mind, you can see the S&P hit new highs and keep on going forward, even if the economy is just chugging along and nothing special. Because you could look back at this and say, well, why is the stock market hitting you know, new all-time highs? We're not really growing. Inflation is still not as bad as it was, but uh, it's still high. Um, that's why. That, that's why the stock market can act that way. So I would not be surprised if at some point this year we could get in the fourth quarter go into all new highs into the S&P 500. It would not shock me. I think at this point, if we're doing a little spec trading on the desk here, I'm probably buying the big breaks and you know on the stock market because the Fed is likely to probably taper off these interest rate hikes. Like Fed will be in between five and six percent. Inflation is coming down. It looks like inflation's now it's running between three and four percent, which gives a real interest rate for the Fed of going to be around two to three percent, depending on how inflation comes in each quarter, which is good enough for the Fed. That is good enough for the Fed to stop raising interest rates. If inflation can stay between three and four percent, interest rates can stay in between five and six. That's good. And they can wait a while. So that provides stability to the stock market. Meanwhile, it looks like recession is off the table, which is now allows for the money flow, but also it allows for the executive teams at these companies stop being defensive and now being more aggressive, which is probably why they've been holding on to as many employees as possible during this tough time, even though there were certainly layoffs, but there weren't as many as I think some people ex expected. So we have that going on. Now, the one thing could derail the stock market, and we're just going to transition us into the energy markets too here in a second, is that Fitch rating cut. And when they, listen, when a when an agency cuts the credit rating of something like the United States, it is a big deal. Going from AAA to AA+, which is only one step down. It's one step down, but it's a big deal. A couple of things. We all remember Dennis Gartman. He was always fond of saying, there's never one cockroach, meaning either there's, and you can read that two ways. Yeah. If an agency is going to make one cut, they probably have another cut in mind, right? You just don't make one cut, right? Especially if you haven't made a cut in what, 10, 15 years or something like that. I think it was sub, subprime crisis. So 15 years, like if it's borderline, if you're agents for agency and you just think it's borderline, the United States going from AAA to AA plus, you don't do it. It's bad for business. It's bad press. Like you're not going to do that. You're only going to make that one cut usually if you think there's going to be another cut behind it. It's kind of like an analyst for the grain markets here. Like 
you know, when I talk, when I think things personally can get either very bullish or very bearish, they taper that, right? You don't want to be the guy in the news cycle that says, you know, $200 crude oil or, you know, $1,000 gold. You, you don't want to be in that range. Like what you want to be is you want to sound bullish or bearish, but, you know, leave room uh, to, to continue to, in, you know, either improve or get more bearish as time goes on. Like that's how the game is played. So that's what's going on the rage stage. The other thing about that too is if Fitch starts to see the ratings coming down, now that puts pressure on their competitors and they're going to get their investors and the people that buy information and ratings from them and say, hey, why is Fitch going down, but you're not? And if those other agencies now need to defend their position on why the United States is AAA, and they know deep down like they probably shouldn't be AAA and they don't want to seem wrong if things keep on going worse than against them, now they're forced to, to drop a rating. It's going to be very interesting to see if that's how it works. That was a little inside baseball, but that's how it works on the other side of this uh, when you get deep into you know, some of these relationships and what, what, these, what these companies are doing from the boardroom and you know working with clients and expectations and how they compete against uh, other rating ratings agencies. So that's going to be very interesting. That is definitely, and when you see that, you can see a dip in the stock market. And we did see a dip in the stock market, but it was only 100 points in the S&P. Now we'll see if that holds. We could go down to 4,400 uh, 4, in the S&P on the chart, maybe even 4,320, where we have a little bit of a gap there. But I don't know. I, I don't think, I think, I think that would be steep here. So I'm expecting a little bit, I mean, I'm expect, I expected that news, the stock market to sell off. It has going to probably find some footing here, but just always remember stock market. While it can, the state of the economy is an influence on the stock market and the money flow. Always remember those top indices, especially something like the S and P 500. Like the reason why they're there is the management and the execution and those companies' ability to navigate in good and bad economic times. That's why they're in the S&P 500. If they couldn't do that, they wouldn't be listed in that index. All right, so another thing. Crude oil took a hit when that, when that bond rating came out because if you're a macro trader and macro traders are big money influence in the market, okay? These are big, big funds with lots of dollars that shift money around from a bunch of different asset classes. When you get a downgrade, the playbook is you, you, you sell to the stock market, That's but primarily you're selling crude oil because what if you're getting a downgrade in the United States, you're concerned about economic growth. So the, so the, the play is you sell energy, crude's the most sensitive, bullish and bearish to economic changes in economic growth. Then you would go ahead and sell other commodities with the exception of maybe gold and silver, right? Because we're concerned about demand, but, but gold and silver become a safety play. Then you sell the stock market, right? And then the dollar is a judgment call if it's going to go up or down. Um, if there's serious concern about the United States having to lower rates than the dollar, I guess, would, you know, the dollar would reflect that, um, but uh, that's not what happened. The dollar went up. So I think, you know, basically money just got parked in the sidelines and, went, and the dollar became a safety play. Anyways, that was the, that was the reaction to that. It's a big deal. It hasn't, you know, it, 
that story should have been in the news cycle more. It's a much bigger deal than what's getting played play out here. I don't know why. You can take your own guesses on it, but that's just the way it that's the way it is right now. What's really interesting is crude oil. Like crude oil should be in the dumps after something like that, and it's not. And what's interesting about crude here is the report this year, the we saw a draw from the, the Wednesday report, and it was a 17 million barrel draw, the biggest ever since they've been keeping these records. I want to say, you know, we have had a week, we've had a weekly report on on energy, you know, crude oil and dissolute stocks, you know, every week since 1983, I believe, biggest on record. So biggest in 40 years, biggest on record. Analysts were looking for a million or two draw. It was 17 million. Uh, and you got to ask yourself, what's going on here? A couple of things. One, Saudi Arabia and OPEC want to have prices supported in the 70s, and they're limiting the supply as much as possible to get there. And one of the effects that this has had is the United States has been picking up export share in Asia and Europe because the crude is just not available from OPEC. So the United States is starting to export a lot of a lot of crude. What that's also been doing then is preventing the administration from refilling the SPR. If you remember, they wanted to get it like it's like 70 or below. We were talking about that for a while. It was like an investment in a trading thesis for ours for a while. That's why we're still bullish crude. And when it did get down there, I don't know why. I don't know why they weren't buying. I mean, they said that that was their target. I mean, isn't that classic trading though? I mean, if you want to just, I'm not here to criticize uh, a government agency or anything, but just you know, for all of us in the hedging and the trading world, like when do you have a target? You say to yourself, I'm going to buy something. It gets down there and you don't do it. It's happened to everyone, right? And especially anyone listening to this podcast or watching the financial news or getting news trading newsletters. And look what the government did. <laughs> they were talking about buying all this crude when it got below 70 and it got down there and they're like, well, probably go lower. So they didn't do it. And here we are above 80. Then after that report, the government pulled their bid. They missed it, right? I mean, how many times have you heard that? They missed it. And that is exactly what happened with this crude oil and the SBR. We got down to their government's price target. They didn't pull the trigger or not enough of it, backed away a little. And they, sh and they should have been buying hand over fist. And here we are at 80. And OPEC's not going to help them out. OPEC knows now the United States is in a crunch. Like the SPRs are at very low levels that we haven't seen in a while. And the recession is probably off the table now that inflation's at 3%, 4%. And we've got interest rates, real interest rates now at 2%. Because if we're at, you know, five and a half, if we're at five and a half Fed funds rate, three and a half inflation, five and a half minus three and a half is 2%. 2% real interest rates. And we've been at negative real interest rates for a while. Fed's going to keep that steady. Market's not worried so much about recession. Uh, we can see some real growth here in the market. I think that's what the S&P is starting to reflect too. And what does that mean for crude? I think I've been waiting for a long time to see the crude oil market start to, to rally. I think we're going to rally here. I think we're going to rally into 2000, 2023 and the 2024 especially if we're not concerned anymore about a recession and we go back to growth and the United States needs to buy oil and refining capacity is lower. Uh, OPEC is not, 
OPEC would love to see 80, 90, $100 barrels. They're going to be no one's friend in this. And, and, and I just don't, and, and unless, and also too, with the Ukraine and the Black Sea, even today, Ukraine was bombing uh, a Russian port. And I know in our, in our grain world, we're talking about how that, that port is, ships out a lot of wheat. It ships out a lot of oil too. So I don't know. I like December 23 and I like June 24 because June is a, is, a, is a much more liquid month than some of the other months around it. If you look at crude oil and you go long-term, it's usually like these June, these June as you, as you go farther out. And you can use the spread markets that way too if you want to be a, a future spread trader. So I would be looking at the December 24 crude options. And I think it'd be buying call spreads. And then if, you are, if you're open to a little bit more risky, you'd sell put spreads. And I think you can do that in June also. And for June 24, and not only that, are you, I mean, I really think we'll have an economic recovery by June of next year. Then you're also gonna have the, the summer driving season for that April, May, you know, time frame building up into the summer. So I like that a lot. If you wanna put this on as a spec play or a hedge play, let's start taking a look into it. Um, and as a reminder here, clients can call my cell, they can text me and my number at the desk is 312-706-7610. Um, and because this is social media and a podcast, there are no trade racks, so that was not a trade rack. Um, if you want a specific trade rack, we have to put that in either a newsletter that has the proper disclosures on it, or you can talk to me over the phone or by email or by text. All right, that is uh, well, something for the compliance department at NFA right there. So let's also get into the grain markets. All right, here's the deal. This is not a good time to be long. This is a good time to sell seasonally. Not saying anything about the crop or what the conditions are out there or the weather pattern. It's just that this is the time of year where we start to decline because as we get into the end of August, it is first notice day and a lot of contracts are tied to first notice day. Guys who do still have old crop and there's not a lot of old crop out there, but the guys that do have old crop have to clear that out. That kind of pressure is not going to be like it was in years before like when we've had, you know, when we've had too much grain, you know, clearly, and there's too much in storage, they'll have an effect. But there does have to be pricing. If you have a basis contract, you actually got to price the grain. If you do that between now and the end of August, you know, when you call your elevator, whoever it may be, to price that grain, um, you're selling it. The elevator is buying it. The elevator has to turn around and sell it on the futures market until they can sell that grain onward if they're not doing it back to back. And that puts pressure on the futures market. That's how... You know, these things happen, whether <coughs> anything that doesn't have to be priced needs to be priced by the end of the month. And that pricing pressure puts pressure on the futures market. Otherwise, they have to roll. And rolling's not a great idea, I don't think, right now on a lot of these contracts. Uh, grain markets are up today because we had the news in, uh, of Ukraine, a little drone attack in Russia. But you, know, you take a look at the yields. I know they're not great and we're not going to have a record, but the hybrids always perform better than you think they do, especially on the corn side. There are a lot of problems out there, but there are also a lot of good corn and the problem areas will have a crop. It's not like this crop is dead. So it, 
I mean, people argue that corn 177 and a half yield is too high. I believe that. I can buy that, but I don't think we're sub 170. I really don't. I, I, I mean, I can I can be talked into a 173 to 176 yield. And when you put in the numbers, yeah, maybe we're a little bit below a two billion carryout, but that's also assuming this USDA demand. And I just don't know if this USDA demand is going to hold up. I think it's more likely we're around a two billion carryout. And that's not the end of the world, right? I mean, it really isn't, especially with the issues in the Black Sea and also with South America still has to grow a, a big crop for a lot of the export numbers to come in for what the United for what the USDA is assuming for this next marketing year, for the new crop marketing year. And that's not that's not set in stone either. But does corn need to be above five bucks as we head into harvest? I mean, I'm I'm thinking corn for harvest lows here and selling pressure. I've been saying 480. I mean, to give myself a little bit more room and not be such a hard line in the sand, I could go 475 to 485, 470 to 490. I don't know. Call it 480, give her, give her, take 10 cents, a nickel or 10 cents either way. Just the way the, the carryout is, and when you compare it also to, you know, corn has to be supported some way because of the wheat price and the soybean price. There is some downside there. I don't think it's, I mean, I guess, I mean, in theory, if the yields are better, if, if we really are one, we really are 177 or higher, you know, all of a sudden we're 450 corn. But I think yields do come down some. We do tighten up a little bit. And because of the high price of wheat and soybeans and the problems in the Black Sea and the fact that, always remember, those new crop projections for supply and demand are assuming a pretty decent South American crop. All right, just had to take a quick call there. Um, I am back. So listen, corn, corn's a range-bound market. We'll see what the, the yields come in at. I still think that DCD spread goes into a pretty steep carry in December corn. I like selling rallies in DC24. Um, I think any way to try to get protection in December 24 at five bucks makes sense on the farmer side and on the end user side. I mean, 575, I mean, for 470, 480, 490 basis, these make sense. I mean, these these are pretty good prices over the, compared to the past couple of years. So I do think you see support um, on buying on those sides. And that's a value area for a lot of commercial buyers. That's, uh, and then for the farmer on, on, D, on these 24 corn, there's going to be kind of a value, I think, above 525 selling that new crop. So, the uh, I think the farmers need to use what they what they can to sell these rallies in these 24 when they can get them. And I think on the end user side, you will see buying. We're already seeing buying. Um, and I'm not I'm not talking stone axe. I'm talking in the industry um, when we are going below five bucks. Um, there is there is the consumer demand and user demand when we're dipping below five and into the fours. So just something to keep in mind there too. Finally, let's get into uh, soybeans and wheat. Soybeans are going to be tight. Hard to break through $13 to the downside if we're going to, if we're going to have yields at 50 or lower, which is I think the Stone X survey put us at 50 and a half. 
I mean, we'll be tight in soybeans for at least six months. Now, South America has every incentive to plant soybeans as much as possible. And if they have a good yield, because there's no La Nina this year, uh, they could really swamp the market with soybeans later on in 2024. However, between now and then, stocks are tight. Any kind of weather issues or hiccups South America has this fall or this winter, really, uh, it could have outsized moves to the upside in the soybean market. So I do like fine. We have a saying around here, new crop becomes old crop. And then tight markets, $13 soybeans for new crop, eventually, a lot of times, I shouldn't say eventually, a lot of times, become $15 soybeans in old crop. So I like beans on runs to 13 from just a spec side. If you are an end user that needs soybean products between now and the spring, that's you know I'm sh that you will see buying pressure coming in there or buying support coming in there too because the writing's on the wall in the soybean crop at least for the next six months. Uh, and then and then things are different. You know for the for the end users, I don't think they have to get aggressive on securing coverage for 2024 next year's crop. Um, but farmers may be wanting to look in what they need to do with soybeans for November 24 and use some of the route. I'm not saying you have to do anything now, but the rallies the for the farmer, it's going to be important for them to do some forward selling on these South American weather rallies this uh, this winter. Because um, if South America has a big crop, United States exports could go from 1.8 billion to 1.6, 1.5. And all of a sudden, if that happens, then a 200 million carryout turns into a 500 million carryout, and that is that's a three that's a three or four dollar difference in the soybean market. So let's be smart about this. If you're on the buy side, your risk is for the next six months, right? If you're a speculator, you're looking for the prices to go up over the next six months. If you're a producer, you're you take advantage of these prices over the next six months. Your risk is really in the in the in the farther year out if uh, if we get some decent crops around here canola is kind of the same we're gonna looks like um it can, canola it was gonna is gonna be supportive by soybeans over the next six months could get dragged lower in the second half of the year because if south america has a big crop even though let's say canola ending stocks could be anywhere between 1.6 and 1.8 million metric tons which is very similar to the ending stocks we had the year before the drought in Canada. Now, do I think prices go back to 500 million a ton, right? Or 550? And just you know, for some math here, for those of you at home, 550 a ton Canadian divided by let's say roughly 44, that's 12 to 13 dollars a bushel in canola. To give you an idea, you know, when canola is at 800, uh, that's really like 18 dollars a bushel for canola, Canadian, not U.S. But I think it's more it's hard to it's hard to see you know just like with corn corn at a 2 billion carryout before the pandemic is 350 to 375 corn you know now it's 480 to 520 corn right and it's because not just the inflation but also all the other commodity markets are high so I mean really it's hard to see canola break below 700 hard to see it go above 900 and it's the same thing. Canola has the potential to rally here, more likely. Um, but as as more grain and oil seeds come into the market mid-year than if we were on track for at least a decent crop next year, 
that premium is going to that premium is going to come out. So the same advice goes for canola as it does for soybeans. Um, canola could be an interesting spec play too, and uh, or reownership play if after the harvest slows come in. So canola also has a post-harvest rally that is usually pretty interesting here, where you see exports really start to to pick up here. Um, also, a lot of canola gets stored, so whatever is available at the at harvest is available at harvest, but once the the excess harvest canola is is sold, um, the selling kind of shuts off for a little while because so many farmers in Canada do have storage. So it's it's an interesting dynamic up there. Um, finally, on the wheat side, wheat is the most bullish by far. It, it, when you take a look at the major exporters, it is getting worse in terms of stock to usage, while at least corn and soybeans and oil seeds are getting better is good for the world. Um, but what the world needs the most in terms of preventing humanitarian crisis is a combination of rice, wheat, and maize, depending on what area of the world you are in. And what is in, in certain areas of the world, you know, what is the preferred, most inexpensive, basically calorie for the diet, right, for a developing nation. And we've seen export bans in rice. That's a big deal. And we're seeing the ending stocks for U.S. wheat and the major exporters combined decreasing, and the Black Sea is still an issue. So my concern is the wheat market. We deserve to stay elevated in wheat for the next year, all right? And when I say elevated, wheat was four, five, and six bucks before the pandemic. Now we're six, seven, and eight. That is fair. Those are fair prices between Chicago, Kansas City, and spring wheat based on stock to usage. And remember this, we already had a winter wheat harvest. We're having our spring wheat harvest over the next couple of months. And that's gonna, in the Northern hemisphere, that's 80% of the world's exportable wheat. And we get a shot of Australia and Argentina, you know, halfway through six months from now, right? We'll be getting spring and winter wheat down there too. But that's just a nice little kicker. You know, the, the big stuff that's available for the world is going to be the northern hemisphere and so whatever we get now from the winter wheat which is done and the spring wheat that's harvested is going to you know is going to pick up soon the world has to price ration that for basically 12 months until we can get another cycle and hopefully things improve in the middle east so there's major wild cards there so i don't think spring wheat has any reason to break below seven or kansas city below 650 or chicago you know, below six. So Chicago could get dragged down by corn a little bit more. But and on the upside, it's hard. Spring wheat likely doesn't get much above like nine, nine fifty, because you can bring in at that point wheat from Europe does make sense to pencil in um, as exports. And we can we've seen that be rally killers in the past. Same thing with Kansas City and Chicago. So it's hard to see Kansas City go above nine. It's hard to see Minneapolis go above nine fifty. It's hard to see. Chicago wheat go much above eight unless something just unbelievable happens in this Ukraine-Russia thing where the escalation can go to, let's say, this worst fear as possible, right? I mean, that's, but barring that, we probably stay in that, uh, in that range. It can be difficult. It can be difficult to market uh, and trade the wheat market for another year, but we'll just have to try to do our best. So I hope everyone found this useful. Those are my thoughts on the stock market, the energy, and the grains. If you have any questions, you want to go over any of your hedging or your trading, 
please give me a call. My number is 312-706-7610. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you all soon. This material is conveyed as a solicitation for entering into a derivatives transaction. This material has been prepared by a Daniels Trading Broker who provides research market commentary and trade recommendations as part of his or her solicitation for accounts and solicitation for trades. Daniels Trading, its principals, brokers, and employees may trade in derivatives for their own accounts or for the accounts of others due to various factors such as risk tolerance, margin requirements, trading objectives, short-term versus long-term strategies, technical versus fundamental market analysis, and other factors. Such trading may result in the initiation or liquidation of positions that are different from or contrary to the opinions and recommendations contained therein. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance. The risk of loss in trading futures contracts or commodity options can be substantial, and therefore, investors should understand the risks involved in taking leveraged positions and must assume responsibility for the risks associated with such investments and for their results. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources. You should read the risk disclosure accessed at www.danielstrading.com. Daniels Trading is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, newsletter, or similar service. Daniels Trading does not guarantee or verify any performance claims made by such systems or services.